Hello again and welcome to Women Who Self-Care, the podcast that seeks to encourage you to put your health and your ambitions first. My name is Boo and our guest today is Charlotte Neer. Charlotte is fantastic and so warm and encouraging to listen to, very charismatic and I felt really inspired to continue the fight for justice for women after listening to her. However, we are talking openly about a potentially sensitive topic for some, so this is a content trigger warning right now. We speak about domestic abuse. If this is particularly raw for you and you feel you may be triggered by listening to conversations about abuse, perhaps give this one a miss or listen at a time when you feel able to process this sort of conversation. Charlotte herself is actually a survivor of domestic abuse, so she tells us very openly how she managed to escape her abuser and what the red flags of abuse are. She's now the CEO of the Regate and Banstead Women's Aid in Surrey to help other women to escape domestic abuse. In this episode, Charlotte tells us how she looks after herself when handling such sensitive and emotional work and the importance of women supporting women and her future ambitions of being an MP. So without any further to do, I'm so excited to be able to say, Charlotte, thank you so much for coming on to episode two of Women Who Self-Care. Oh, it's my pleasure. I was very excited about it. (laughs) I was and am very excited about it. And listeners, I'm so sorry. Again, the recording isn't perfect. We are getting better, I promise. But we've had to cut out quite a few of mine and Charlotte's very frequent giggling because we just sound like we're talking over each other. So there might be brief echoes of my voice and Charlotte's voice in mine and Charlotte's recording. So please bear with. But yeah, let's crack on. Charlotte, how did you get into your line of work and how did you become the CEO of a women's refuge? So I used to work in recruitment um, and had done so for many years. And um, I'd been a victim of domestic abuse myself, my ex-husband was um, very violent and very controlling. Um, And when I split up with him, um, I was still working in recruitment, but I I thought I just would like to do something, something meaningful, really, but I thought I'd like to help other victims of domestic abuse because um, I'd stayed in a refuge when I was married to him, and actually it was a horrible place, and I'd ended up going back home after a night Um, So I guess I just wanted to be the person that wasn't there for me. So Mm. I gave up my flash BMW and my my really good salary and went to become a support worker at a refuge. Um, And then after a couple of years, the um, person that was running it left um, and I applied for the job. And yeah, I've been doing it ever since. And I absolutely love it. It is the best job in the world and everyone thinks it's going to be really grim and depressing but it's not it's amazing I love working with all women I love working with the women that live in the refuge and it's just a really weirdly happy place to be you know there's a lot of sadness which you would expect but um amongst that there's a real feeling of joy and freedom and yeah it's just it's a beautiful job and I love it is the sense of freedom almost from vicariously living through these women's uh, liberation from domestic abuse yeah just seeing women transform from um a place where they're so controlled and so degraded and you know they come to us you know, so low from yeah. the abuse. And just to see them transform and, yeah, flower, really, I guess, is the best way to look at it. You know, and, yeah, to be part of that is just such an utter privilege. But on the other hand as well, for me personally, 
working in an environment that's, you know, I'm surrounded by women that care um, in the staff. Um, and that is, yeah, that's liberating as well and, and lovely. And also I get to dress really casually. You know, I don't have to put on kind of fancy workwear. <laughs> Actually, you wouldn't believe how much of an impact that makes yeah. just you know, rolling into work every day in, yeah, in jeans or in a tracksuit. I mean, ultimately, we work in the place that these women live. So, you know, the last thing they want is to see somebody, you know, in kind of... Suited and booted. Yeah, when they're in their pyjamas. So, you know, we just... For me, that that is such a joy. So I never wear makeup. I never do my hair unless, obviously, I'm going, like... To Parliament or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, Drop that so in there, Charlotte. Let's get into Parliament. It's pretty fancy. <laughs> that was just the last time I could remember that I'd actually made an effort. So um, yeah, it's that is joyful as well. Just literally mm. getting out of bed in the morning, having a shower, throwing on some clothes, and not bothering with the whole you know, this whole need that women feel in the workplace to wear a load of makeup and have nice hair. And, you know, I don't believe in all that anyway. So it's nice to just live, you know, who I am. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, on the pressure or lack thereof of putting on makeup or doing hair when you work for yourself or working from home, some people have found it really liberating. Some people have found it really, you know, sort of unmotivating as though they're not properly ready. And, Everyone's different, of course, with that. I am I love getting ready. I love putting makeup on because I seldom have the opportunity, really, to the point that people are f- absolutely flabbergasted to see me outside of um, the yogaing hours in a sort of quote-unquote normal outfit <laughs> because I live in my leggings. You know, that. oh, my God. <laughs> I, I've never seen your body so unsilhouetted. <laughs> but it must be commented on, um, I think, that the fact that you and I both when we're in professional settings. Um, so when you go to Parliament, you put on your makeup. And for instance, if I go to a job interview or have a fancy meeting, I put makeup on. That pressure that we're experiencing when we need to be professional to put makeup on, I think has to be absolutely abolished. <laughs> the idea that a woman with a bare face is somehow unprofessional. Um, and do you know, I think it's interesting because often that is policed by other women so I mean that on it's never really ill-intentioned I don't think um it'll be from a space of care often so for instance one that I hear all the time and I know that my friends and other women have experienced this is let's say you're somebody who wears mascara a lot and you come into work one day you don't have makeup on people go oh god you're looking very tired you know are you okay (laughs) and that is a type of policing of bodies here that is sort of Trying to understand why someone doesn't look well, making sure they're okay. But it's also the underlying message behind that is you look ill without wearing makeup. And that absolutely has to stop. And it's a really good way to start in, you know, we hear this tooted about, or I hear this tooted about all the time, women supporting women. How can you do that? Literally, I just not policing other women's bodies. Always being positive if it's a positive situation. Obviously not if someone's being an asshole. I mean, we're all people. But just supporting each other. And actually, overwhelmingly, I have found I am really supported by women. And I've never experienced this sort of way that the media portray women as being catty and really competitive with each other. And whilst I think competition is very healthy and it can help with your self-esteem, the idea behind the cattiness, I think, is a really complex issue. One part of me very much thinks that this is internalised misogyny. 
and that a woman's criticism, which may be very valid, is seen as hysterical, catty, unnecessary, like bitchy, um, when actually they might just be critical. But equally, you know, I don't want to diminish um, individual people's experiences. And if they're telling me that's what they've experienced, that's what they've experienced. So Charlotte, have you experienced this? Or what do you think this sort of portrayal, uh, be it real or not, of women being catty is about? Or where is it from? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's just the whole... Well, it's misogyny, isn't it? And that's, you know, that's been picked up and, you know, other women have picked it up and I just do not buy into that at all. And so, I mean, obviously, people are people. That's how I look at it. So in any team, you might get the odd bad apple that's going to cause a problem. But the team that I work with are, you know, all women and I love working with all women. And in actual fact, I feel like I'm in some sort of protective bubble half the time. And if I'm forced into a situation... Yeah, if I'm forced into a situation where I'm suddenly kind of thrust into an environment where it's all men working, I find it really foreign. I am glad every working day of my life that I work with all women. And as I say, I just think that... This whole kind of, oh, my God, I couldn't work with women or I couldn't have a female boss, I think is utter crap and, yeah, yes, not yeah. my experience whatsoever. No, and, you know, because we've not experienced it, it's very easy to dismiss this, but my gut feeling is that this idea that women are catty and bitchy with each other is just another way of saying or literally oppressing women, you know, saying and sort of re-establishing that, that idea very tired idea that women are irrational and you know the volatile hysterical and they can't possibly work together in the way that men collaborate and it it just doesn't feel right in my lived experience and it's also a really easy thing to say you know I'm thinking of the hopefully ex-president Trump um, saying things like nasty woman and the way it's just about belittling women invalidating what they say as unimportant, over-emotional, you know? Now, it might not go as deep as that from stopping women from progressing, but my gut feeling is that it is. I think it does, because if you think about it, it's all, you know, all of these things about women being hysterical and, you know, all of the kind of negative names that we call women, you know, in, in... in the workplace or in life is all about keeping women down and you know saying oh I wouldn't want to work for a female boss or I wouldn't want to work in a team full of women that's that's all it is it's just keeping women down and it's rubbish um and as I said people are people you know it's not I mean I I I recognize that women working together support each other and lift each other up and that that I think is the main difference actually to working with all women is it's it's actually the exact opposite of what that stereotype is so you know I love it we all support each other what I also love as well is that there's no embarrassment or shame in all of us sitting around and crying together which we all do a lot and you know if something really horrifically unjust has happened which so often happens for the women that I work with you know the the women that are living in the refuge if something unjust happens to them then we all get affected by it in fact yesterday 
I had a meeting um, with um, an MP and a woman who had lived at the refuge. She was crying, I was crying, and she was just saying, you know, you've changed my life um, and, you know, I'm so grateful. And she'd named her daughter um, a a name of of something that reminded her of her life at the refuge. And, yeah, we were both crying, but it it was like a beautiful thing. It's not something, there's no shame or embarrassment. And, again, I think that's just a joy of working with women. We don't judge each other based on emotions that we may have, and we view it actually as a strength really if, if you're able oh, to release emotion you know this is a really perfect example of where feminism is benefiting everybody so for instance emotions and expressing them have been tied to women and therefore seen as weak and a bad quality to possess as we raise the bar of expectations of women and typical women's qualities i.e being able to express their emotions as being a positive thing It means that men aren't shackled as well in these oppressive gender expectations. So how have you fostered that environment, Charlotte, where women feel comfortable to express themselves openly in a work environment and also within the refuge environment? I guess I've uh, the team that I have now is entirely made up of um, women that I've recruited. um, And... I've recruited women based on their the way that they are and not their skill set. And it was an important lesson, actually, that I learned in recruitment, which is actually, whilst a CV can be helpful, unless it's an exceptionally technical job that requires, you know, a technical knowledge, actually personality and mindset are so much more important. So, um, yeah, my team is made up of women from exceptionally different backgrounds. But it's all, you know, for me, it's their it's their nature and it's their drive and it's their determination to right injustices um, that, that have been the reasons that, I, that I've recruited the team that I have. And, you know, I... I want women to be working with me who can make a decision on their own. I suppose the most important thing is, could you sit down with a woman in crisis who has lost everything, who has suffered so much, and can you hold her? Can you share her pain with her? Can you help her recover? Can you help her find her strength again and it's all of those qualities and as I say you can't you can't get that on a CV you have to meet somebody so you know if I had say 20 people apply for a job I'd probably want to see them all because you just don't know from a bit of paper. So you've created that nice inclusive and supportive environment by simply having the right people around you. So even though you have the right people around you presumably this work that you do is incredibly emotionally taxing how are you not taking your work home with you or maybe you are so how do you look after yourself to sort of detach from work and be able to live as charlotte near and not charlotte near the supporter 24 7 so for us the most important thing is boundaries and that was a hard lesson I learned actually. So um a lot of my team are survivors which comes with positives and negatives. So the positive is that 
um, the team members that are survivors of domestic abuse themselves can really, really put themselves in that woman's shoes and understand all of the judgment and the blaming she will have encountered. But the danger of putting yourself in somebody else's shoes is that you um, experience your own abuse repeatedly. Um, And that happened to me actually for about a year and a half. When I first started at the refuge for about a year and a half, every time I heard a woman's story and there were triggers within her story of my own experiences, I was repeatedly reliving my own abuse again and again and again. And I can remember sitting in a counselling session um, with my counsellor saying, I literally cannot hear another story of rape or sexual abuse um, because I just don't feel that I can do this anymore. And it was really an, an important lesson, actually, and it's something that I'm always mindful of with my team, that we need we need to ourselves put in place boundaries so that you can effectively support that woman who is telling you her story, but you're not reliving it yourself. And part of that is by providing every single woman that works with me um, with at least monthly clinical supervision um, and a space really for her to kind of unload all the trauma that she's hearing with a with a qualified professional um and so that you know that that's not building up layer upon layer so you don't suffer vicarious trauma um and if if one of my team is struggling a bit then I'll always organize extra sessions for them if they want them um and it's really you know I recognize that what we're dealing with day in day out is awful awful stuff that most people would hear rarely in their lifetimes and we're hearing it day in day out I mean you could get a woman come in the office and say you know could I you know could I have some nappies and then she'd sit down and tell you about being repeatedly raped and it's not you know there's no space for you as a support worker to think well, I need to take some time to know that I'm going to hear something horrendous. It's literally you're just bombarded with it. So self-care is is about taking the time to look after yourself. It is about trying to leave it at work, learning techniques where, you know, you're not taking it home. I'd be lying if I said to you that I haven't sat out in the garden crying my eyes out on many occasions because I have, but I've got better over the years at dealing with it. And, you know, I'm just hyper aware of that with all of the women that I work with that, you know, they're doing amazing things and they should be looked after. And so we always actually, we sometimes in our team meetings at the end say, what are you doing to self-care tonight or this week? I mean, often it's... Yeah, often it's like gin and tonic um, or... <laughs> and that comes up quite frequently, I have to say. Um, but but actually, that's not probably the best way to self-care. But it is about taking... Yeah, it's about taking time for yourself and recognising that actually you may just want to lie in bed in your pyjamas all weekend watching TV, you know, selling Sunset. That was my favourite recently, <laughs> just lying there watching trash TV for like two days just to kind of recover. Yeah, I mean, you need time to not be stimulated and trashy TV kind of satiates that need. But can I just ask what you mean by clinical supervision? Do you mean therapy? Yeah, so, I mean, before I came into this line of work, I was like, supervision, doesn't that mean that somebody's just sort of 
looking over your shoulder, you. checking what you're doing. Yeah. But no, apparently not. Um, so I'm telling you it's called supervision, but I always kind of view it as counselling. So I'll sit in a session with my supervisor, who is not my boss, who is my therapist, and oh. tell her about stuff that's happened with women that I work with. But also it's a space to talk about how it's impacting me in my personal life. Um, and she just helps me work through it. And honestly... That relationship that I've built up with her, I've had the same supervisor for eight years now, that has helped me more than I can possibly express in my personal life. Having suffered abuse really for, you know, pretty much on and off all my life, really through my childhood and, you know, with my ex-husband, I have struggled to build trusting relationships. And actually having that supervisor has been a building block in enabling me to actually build trusting relationships. So I thank her from the bottom of my heart. I do often thank her, but probably she doesn't know even how much she's helped me. Well, I hope she listens to this podcast. Um, but you really cannot undervalue or de-emphasise the power of being able to communicate your thoughts and ideas and sometimes it can be so frustrating when you cannot verbalize how you feel and a therapist I presume would help to enable that and the catharsis you get from being able to express yourself feels so good doesn't it it's such a release and there's certainly something to be said for a therapist's slight emotional absence by comparison to a friend when they're listening to you a friend will very much probably take on some of your anxiety and a therapist has been trained not to do you know they've been trained for years and years and years and able to offer very pragmatic solutions and whilst our friends are there for us do think we have to remind ourselves that everyone has their own shit going on and to make sure that we're not trying to take from an already empty cup so one thing that my friends and I actually do is if we need to speak to one another about something serious, you know, vent or something, kind of use them as a therapist, we check in just really easily through WhatsApp, kind of make it lighthearted, like, oh, do you have the mental capacity today to be able to deal with my shit as well as your own? And sometimes, and most of the time, it's, yeah, sure. But actually, sometimes it's, no, I'm, I'm actually needing a bit of time for myself. And actually, usually when I hear my friends saying that they need to look after themselves, it actually makes me be really pragmatic with my own self-care because I see, oh, she's looking after herself. I'm going to again then, you know, run myself a bath, get an early night. And it works really well. And I think actually with therapy or talking to people, we can sometimes feel like it's really self-indulgent and, you know, we're not worthy of their time or feel like we're burdening them. If you actually just set those boundaries in the first place of, you know, when you need to talk, it's absolutely fine. And knowing that when your friend isn't available for you to talk to, that's equally fine. You know, talking about yourself, getting therapy, needing help and wanting to indulge that need is not selfish. Yes, and that is it. That is the thing is like we we often talk about therapy as, oh, you know, it's a bit of an American, you know, kind of self-indulgent thing to do. And this comes back to that you know, being selfish is not a negative thing. And actually, it's a self-caring thing. So going to a place and sitting there and talking about yourself for an hour, some people might yeah. look at that as being self-indulgent. I look at it as self-care. I'm saying to myself, I'm worth taking an hour out to go and talk about myself for an hour. And who doesn't <laughs> love talking about themselves? I mean, come oh, on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so... 
obviously you have that help, but you did say there are times when work does get the better of you. You know, you have a good old cry in the garden. So been there, so been there. What do you do, Charlotte, to sort of bring yourself out of that mentality, mood, disposition? You know, what are your sort of recovery methods to get back to being happy, healthy, Charlotte? Well, I mean, for me personally, swimming is an amazing, amazing um, recovery tool for me. It's like meditation for me, swimming. Um, And there's something in being underwater and counting the lengths. Counting the lengths whilst I'm swimming is probably the only time that my mind is still. And because I'm concentrating on the counting, so for me, I've I've tried meditation and I can't keep my mind still enough for long enough. So so swimming is just literally my mind, I see it as like a dried up sponge that's just suddenly unfurling. Um, And it's like a relaxing of my brain. Um, But I think, but I think also what's important is the solidarity amongst the team here. That is also a recovery tool. But I think it's also important. And last summer, for instance, going through um, perimenopause, I had a really sort of difficult few months. And having a supportive committee who oversee the charity say to me, you need to work shorter days for three months and, you know, that's what you need to do because you're worth it. We need you in good shape. And, you know, we want you to come in an hour late and leave two hours early every day for two or three months. And that's what I did. And actually, I didn't feel bad about it because I needed to. Yeah. And then I was came back and I was fine. And it's so important to actually go on that journey to discover what actually helps and heals me. What is my self-care and this is something we're gonna I think revisit in this podcast a lot because I think a lot of people are actually a little bit lost as to what self-care is or what constitutes me looking after myself for instance so a mini history lesson the term self-care was coined in the 1950s and originally it was the things that patients did who were institutionalized so in hospital and it's the things that they did to help cultivate a sense of self-worth um, through acts of very small bits of care and preservation for their own mental health and physical health really so things like brushing your teeth that sounds like a really normal thing but for instance if you have major depression brushing your teeth and getting up in the morning and feel as though you're worthy of having nice brushed teeth it's a big deal so your your self-care will probably adapt and change over your lifetime and it will change hour by hour day by day depending on what you need and it's about cultivating that understanding within yourself of how to preserve your health and then how to create routines and rituals and schedules that will help you get back on track and really important to remember that whilst you know maybe you were inspired by last week's episode with Anna um, on her running and her achievements with that you might want to do that and what you might want to do might be different than what actually might help you. So it is important to sort of do that self-work on finding what makes you feel more joyful. Oh, God, that's, that's so true. I mean, I think when I first started swimming, which is about four years ago now, I didn't do any exercise at all before that. I was totally unhealthy 
And it was just, I literally went through that, what you're just saying, that journey of what do I actually want to do? I hate running. I've got massive boobs. Running is like the worst thing in the world for me. So I can't do that. I don't like kind of classes because I don't like being told what to do. Um, And I'm a bit of a loner. So swimming just like ticked all the boxes. But I didn't know whether I'd be any good at it. And um, I spoke to somebody else that I know that swims and she told me the best goggles to get. And finding somewhere as well that you don't feel you know I'm I'm always a bit I've got this weird thing about I don't like going new places on my own so um it, yeah. was, it was kind of getting somebody to come with me the first few times and um, my yeah. daughter it was actually bless her um and after that I felt like I could do it on my own but um yeah finding what you like that's the most important thing don't be like oh you should do yoga or you should do running or whatever it is what it's what you enjoy it should be about yeah that anyway. no for sure it absolutely should And I'm just going to circle back to domestic abuse because we're talking about getting to know yourself and understanding what works for you, etc. And understanding the way that you feel is one thing. Understanding yourself when you have been potentially manipulated is a whole new thing. And I feel like at the moment we're hearing a lot about how sadly domestic abuse is rising exponentially during the lockdown. But what actually constitutes as domestic abuse? Is it always clear to see that this might be domestic abuse that you're experiencing, for instance? I think people are under the impression that domestic abuse is physical. And, um, like, you know, that's because we always see the images of a man with a clenched fist and a woman with a black eye. And that is so far from the truth of it only being physical. It just, it you know, it couldn't be further from the truth. So, um, but I think it's that thing, that image of it being a punch or a slap is actually a problem because people then say, yeah, I'd have left. So it's important to look at what domestic abuse really is aside from the violence and actually in a lot of occasions there actually is no violence um so domestic abuse in my opinion is probably better described under the banner of coercive control so coercive control is a pattern of behaviors and incidents so let's just let's look at it this way say for example you met somebody and within a week he punched you in the face you're going to leave that person. Of course you are. But it would never, in in a domestic abuse, coercive control relationship, it wouldn't start like that. What usually happens is that you would get love-bombed by the person um, who you meet and they would shower you with, you know, affection. They'd want to know, you know, they'd want to spend all their time with you um, and they'd want to be, you know, the main focus of your life. Um, one of the red flags to look out for actually is someone that wants to move in immediately. That's a massive red flag. Someone that wants to know all about your day. Now, we, you know, it, <laughs> always think, oh, isn't it nice if your partner asks you what you've been up to all day? Well, yes, maybe. But in the early stages of a relationship, if your partner is saying, what have you been up to today? Who were you talking to? What did you say? Who did you go out to lunch with? What? Who did you meet? Those are massive red flags. And we romanticise that sort of behaviour, which is not, not a good 
way to do it. So, um, so yeah, someone that just wants to be around you all the time, that wants to kind of literally know the ins and outs of your life, that is a red flag. And then it will go on to things like, in small ways, giving your freedoms away. So I remember with my ex-husband, he... Um, very early on in the relationship said, oh, I think we should always go out as a couple because, you know, people that go out without their partner are obviously up to something, aren't they? And I kind of, I know, I mean, I, you know, now I look back and I think, how was I so naive? But at the time I thought, oh, that seems really romantic. He always wants to be with me. So I kind of, you know, I agreed to it. And actually it's not, it's giving your freedom away. And so, you know, those behaviours over time will escalate until that person is utterly controlling you. They will isolate you from friends and family. And there are loads of ways that they could do that. They won't let you uh, attend, uh, say, for example, a doctor's appointment on your own. Um, And uh, that's also a good way to prevent you from disclosing what's going on to you with you is that they won't allow you to do those kind of things. I've heard women that have had their keys taken away they've had their shoes removed so that they can't leave my ex-husband um didn't allow me any form of access to any money whilst I was pregnant you know when I was working he obviously couldn't stop that but um when I was pregnant he would you know take away my cards and um so economic abuse is is a major factor um a lot of the time and sexual abuse um when you're in a coercively controlling relationship um, and you are forced to repeatedly have sex with your partner when you don't want to, that's, you know, that's an element of domestic abuse, um, sadly, that's all too common. And really, if you, if you look at that, at the root of it, if you're in a coercively controlling relationship and your partner wants to have sex with you and you don't want to, but you can't say no because you know that's going to make them really angry, then that is yeah. rape. Actually, it is pure and simple. It is rape because you don't have the capacity to consent because you're yeah. in a controlling relationship. And I don't think a lot of people really understand that and you know certainly I struggled with that concept when I first started this work and I know that a lot of women who live with us think well I wasn't raped I wasn't kind of dragged behind a bush but actually if you were forced to have sex and you didn't want to but you just couldn't say no that that is rape Um, and physical violence you know does form part of a lot of domestic abuse relationships but as i say it isn't the you know it isn't the deciding factor if your partner put, puts you down repeatedly in front of people um and you know does some of the other things that i've mentioned one of the other tactics that they do in the early days when they're bombarding you with love is they get you to tell them your deepest, darkest secrets. And then later, when their true nature starts to be revealed, they will threaten that they will disclose those secrets. And that's another really powerful tool to keep you where you are. Um, One of the other things that I've seen really commonly over the years is um, threats of suicide. So a perpetrator will threaten to commit suicide if you leave them. Um, And I know of cases where they have actually um, ended their lives, but that threat is actually also a powerful, powerful tool to keep you in your place. There are so many different aspects of this, but, you know, as I, and that's why I'm saying when people say, why didn't you just leave or, or I would have left if that happened to me, actually, if you've had your 
economic, you know, ability to leave and all of these other factors, when they all come into play, it makes it very, very impossible to gather the strength to get away if you can get away. Yeah. And that's, that's it, isn't it? If you can get away and to say, why don't you just leave is to assume that that is an option. And it's also incredibly victim shaming. Um, you know, it's, it's putting the responsibility of the abuse on the victim here or on the survivor when all the questions should be directed at the perpetrator and why it was possible for them to feel as though they could degrade and abuse another human being. And equally, I think with what you said with manipulation, etc., when you really love somebody, and this will be really hard for some people to understand, I think, you get so attached to them, it's very human to do that. And sometimes this person can be horrible for you too. And at first, you might not even realise that they are being manipulative. Because they're being manipulative and manipulation in its nature is deceptive and sneaky and silent. And yeah, you don't always know what's going on. You don't. And it's insidious and it's drip, drip, drip. And the other thing that people don't take into account is if you've never suffered an abusive relationship and you've just had, you know, kind of in inverted commas, normal relationships, um, you know that if you want to end that relationship, you can end it. But what yeah. what they don't under, what people don't understand is, if you're with an abuser, they won't let you end that relationship. They're not going to move out if you want them to. They're not going to stop stalking or harassing you. And potentially they're going to murder you. So it's, you know, it's... And, you know, that, that might sound dramatic to some people, but believe me, that is not dramatic in a lot of cases. And certainly in my case, you know, I was threatened with death and... It really was a life or death situation trying to get away from him. Well, thank you for sharing that, Charlotte. That is, and it always will be very brave to share those experiences. And I am deeply sorry you went through that. I know you're on the other end. Yeah, but... and I, you know, I don't think, and actually you say I'm at the other end of it. And yes, I believe that in 98% of my life I am. But the reality is he's still out there. I'm still hiding where I live. We've had to move house twice in the last three years. So I think that it, you know, for some people, me included, it never really is over. You just find a way to live with it and you find a way to shrink that person in your mind as much as you can because while you're in that relationship, they kind of take on godlike proportions. You know, you feel like they're everywhere and they're listening to everything. So it's a lot of work to try and minimise their presence in your life. But, you know, if I said that I wasn't occasionally scared, you know, I'd be lying. I am from time to time. But I've managed to get it to a point where it doesn't impact me on a day-to-day basis. And I actively fight against that. So when I feel that fear, I think I'm not going to stop talking about him or about domestic abuse because then he's won. Yeah being really pragmatic about it. Well, Charlotte, thank you so much again for sharing that. Um, As you said, you you have to, to look after yourself. But I am incredibly grateful that you're sharing this and helping other women. So if somebody is listening to this and thinking, oh my goodness, this is what I'm experiencing, what can they do? So the first thing I think to recognise, if somebody who's listening is you know, relates to anything that I've said, the first thing I would suggest to you is don't try and think about the whole picture. 
if you think this is what you're experiencing um, and you don't want to be experiencing it and you want some help to get out, do not think about all of it because it might overwhelm you. So the way that I got through it and, and the way that we help other women get through it is just to think one little step at a time. So if your first thought is, I think I'm experiencing this, I, I think I might need some help, then my advice would be to call the National Domestic Abuse Helpline, which is 0808 2000 24-7. And they will help point you in the right direction. They might just help talk it through a little bit, um, but they'll point you in the direction of perhaps somebody in your local community who could help or in, you know, I guess the most high-risk cases, I would say, you know, who come to refuge, they can help you find a refuge. But, it, you know, it is just helpful to talk to somebody. If you're not ready to pick up the phone to, a, you know, the domestic abuse helpline, then try talking to, to a friend that you trust. Um, I know that can be so difficult. And also, if you've been isolated, you may not have any friends left. But just try talking it through. But choose who you talk to carefully because... You know, we're so conditioned as a society to be judgmental that it would be awful if you chose to talk to somebody who gave you the wrong response and then you sort of closed back up again. That's why I'm saying to ring the helpline number because they'll understand. They're not going to minimise what you're going through. They'll just be really sympathetic. And the problem is yeah. if you start thinking about, well, how am I going to leave? What am I going to do about housing? What am I going to do about my job? What am I going to do about my kids? Then it becomes overwhelming and it feels like a problem you can't solve. So when I say take one little step at a time, that's all you need to do is to think about picking up the phone. And the rest will just okay. happen. The rest will follow naturally. You know, there are so many brilliant specialist organisations that will help you and support you get out of this so just to round that up it's one step at a time don't look at the bigger picture call the helpline and selectively speak to a friend yes definitely and you might be you might be surprised at you know the reactions of your friends and family members if you choose to speak to them so that's why i'm saying you know if at all possible speak to a professional because you know lots of our friends and family are judgmental and you know you don't want to come up against that the first time you decide to sort of talk it through with somebody and actually also with there's so many misconceptions about domestic abuse somebody might be trying to be helpful and give you the wrong advice yeah and it potentially to be fatal um i can't comment on domestic abuse because i've never experienced that thankfully but i have experienced um you know, a bad relationship where I've seeked advice from friends and that advice not being particularly validating of how what I'm experiencing and sort of allowing me, not blaming friends, friends here at all, but allowing me to sort of justify this person's behaviour and, you know, stay with them. And, and though your friends are trying to help you, sometimes, again, it goes back to the conversation we had about therapy and getting professional help friends aren't always the experts definitely and I I think I think that um you know unfortunately the point of leaving a relationship if you're in an abusive relationship is the most dangerous point in that relationship because that person who is trying to control you will feel like they're losing control if they think you're going to leave and that's when something absolutely awful could happen so it's important yeah. that you get 
some professional support. And another common thing with domestic abuse is that we, and I talk about myself included in this, we all think, oh, I'm making a big fuss about nothing. This isn't that bad. That's because that's what you've been taught by that perpetrator. So, you know, let let somebody else help you to judge whether it's that bad or it isn't. And, you know, I'm talking about a professional because I might recognise something in someone's story that actually is a massive red flag that, you know, if you're experiencing, you might not realise. Yeah. Again, thank you so much for sharing your expertise on that, Charlotte. So despite all of that and despite that horrible experience that you've had and are still experiencing to a degree... You are incredibly peppy and happy, it seems, incredibly charismatic. And, you know, how are you, how are you like that, yeah. <laughs> basically? You know, is that from putting yourself first with regards to, you know, you go swimming and that you've made sure you've hired a really nice team, etc. So surrounding yourself with good people. So what... <laughs> How can I become more like Charlotte Neer and exude that positivity? <laughs> I know. I mean, I like to think that I am pretty positive. Not all the time, obviously. Um, and, you know, the gin... I don't know why I keep talking about gin, but, you know, I do have the odd, <laughs> the odd gin and tonic when I need it. Um, for me, you know, I I am a bit of an introvert and... Um, really? You know, I don't get that impression at all. Uh, do you know, everybody says, you're not, you're not at all. Oh, my God, I am. For me, alone time is actually really important. That sort of yeah. time just to kind of unwind and be on my own. Um, my, yeah. par- my partner's really important to me. He's just so laid back and you know I love spending time with him my kids are the most amazing human beings I know every mum I know every mum thinks that but you know they they are my world so my happiest time is being with my partner and being with my kids and you know for me that's replenishing for my soul and yeah that's what I need that is so damn beautiful Charlotte love is all you need isn't it and connection so you've built it just sounds so much like you have built yourself a really supportive network of people both at work and at home. So I guess we've spoken about how you've escaped. So is your idea of freedom, Charlotte, being able to choose who your supportive network and who your love comes from? Freedom, to me, is actually quite an emotional question. I didn't realise actually that we were going to be talking about this. I probably should have realised, but... Um, I'm sitting here, my eyes are filled with tears because freedom to me probably is different to a lot of other people. Freedom to me is the right to express who I am. It's the right to say what I want to say and just to be me. And maybe if you haven't had that taken away from you for a very long period of time, you don't really appreciate how valuable that is. But for me... Yeah, just saying what I want to say without somebody putting me down or, or mm. yeah, removing that right to be able to express my opinion. And, yeah, that's all it means to me, actually, is just being who I want to be. You're incredibly resilient, Charlotte. I'm listening to this and I feel so angry that someone had the audacity to put you through that. Um 
And you seem to have an incredible sense of self now. And, you know, we've spoken about how important it is to get to know yourself and listen to yourself and really listen to your gut and how you feel, truly, how you feel and not trying to please somebody else, etc. That is so critical. And that's something that I've grown into in the last few years of, for, for most of my life, having my opinion eroded or... You know, I didn't trust my own instinct for most of my life. And yet in the last, I don't know, five years, I realise I've actually got a really good instinct. I've got a great gut instinct. And I now always say, oh, I'm always right about this or whatever. But it's so important to trust your instinct. If something feels wrong, it's wrong. So, yes, young women, that's that's what you should do. Just believe in yourself. Believe in your instinct. Too right. And actually, I definitely think that the sort of people-pleasing thing with women, I am desperately trying to unlearn that. And the more I am trying to, you know, still be considerate of others, but really put myself forward, the happier I am being. But boy, oh boy, is it hard. And it all, you know, I definitely think it stems from women's feelings being diminished historically, um, you know, and even now through movies as being, you know, hysterical, over-emotional, that shit. (laughs) Um, And, you know, learning to trust your gut, I think actually can be really hard. It can be, but you, what you have to do is if you think something and you act on it and you were right remember that literally sit there and think I'm going to remember that I'm storing that memory in my memory bank don't let it slide and then the next time when you feel that thing something's not quite right recall that memory and think I was right the last time I'm going to be right this time and it's just that it's just like occasions that you actively remember that you can call on and the more you do that the more you will learn to trust yourself sound advice charlotte near um but you actually reaffirm yourself don't you with your gut and your feelings and opinions with twitter can you tell people about your, your love of twitter Do you know I, twitter is can be the world's worst cesspit but is also almost you know, the social media love of my life. I actually credit Twitter with improving my confidence because when I first started on Twitter, I wasn't that confident. And I'd observe all these kind of arguments going on and I'd think, oh God, I don't want to say the wrong thing because what if someone hates me and what if someone says this and says that? And actually what I started to do proactively was to put an opinion, maybe a little bit more neutral to begin with, out there And yes, you do get some hate, but you learn in little small doses to deal with that. And then over time, I would... And now, I just say what I think because actually... I don't care whether some people don't like it. And that is the joy of Twitter. I believe everyone should use it to build their confidence. (laughs) So, See, I think of Twitter as exemplifying and encouraging reactiveness rather than thoughtfulness and my yogi self is no 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 like give things time (laughs) but I think you have a really valid point there if you've had your opinions etc suppressed or want to have your voice felt heard that is exactly what twitter is for so we've got our last question now she's quite sad um 
And I'm going to ask the same question that I asked uh, my triathlete last week. Charlotte, how do you fuel yourself being a CEO? And what are some almost generic self-care things that you do to help you get by and get through your day-to-day life? And whilst it will be very obvious why I'd ask triathlete what she eats, you know, because how does she physically have the energy and fuel herself to move so much? I want to ask you to that question because I want to normalize just women eating without it being in the same context of diet culture or, you know, trying to get healthy and whatever. It's just eating for pleasure and sustenance. So how are you self-caring, Charlotte? Oh, God, for the most part, I mean, you know, it's active self-care because actually there isn't a lot of time. Um, We had a conversation before about, you know, getting up early. And I have to say, for me, that is, yeah, no, I don't get up early. So I'm always the person that presses snooze. I've always been grateful for that for for my whole life. (laughs) I struggle to get up in the morning, so I'm not a jump-out-of-bed person. I work a lot. I drive a lot to get to our different refuges. Um, I use the car time, actually, to... Um, I listen to a lot of, you know, kind of um, debate radio. I love I love listening to anything political. So, for me, that's, that's a bit of a hobby. So, the, the kind of driving time is, you know, goes away because I'm just listening to political debate. And, you know, for me, that's enjoyable. Um, God, I'm probably, I'm not the healthiest person in terms of diet. My weight goes up and down. Um, In fact, I know when I'm not in a great space because my weight goes up, I'll be drinking, you know, a gin and tonic every night rather than just once or twice a week. And then I, then I think, okay, I need to set myself back on track. Um, So yeah, no, it's, I don't, I'm not a hugely athletic person, but swimming, yeah, that's the only thing I do. And like I said, I love trash TV. I also love reading. Um, but again, the reading, the reading choices are not politically, you know, not particularly highbrow. So I read a lot of serial killer thrillers. Oh. <laughs> well, as we have kept on saying, do what you need to do to get you through. Um, Charlotte, you have been incredibly informative and so lovely to speak to thank you so much for coming on to women who self-care and for people who have listened to this and feel that they do need help that number again for the national domestic abuse helpline is 0808 2000 24 7 remember the thousand is three zeros so 0808 and again, yeah, thank you so much, Charlotte, for coming on. God, well, thanks for listening to me droning on for the last hour. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I hope, I hope maybe someone gets something out of it. And I've enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. And that was Charlotte Neer, the CEO of the Regate and Bansteads Women's Aid. Wasn't she just so lovely? And you know next week's episode we have an equally lovely and oh my goodness so inspiring woman on we have the co-founder and creative director of stories studio the amazing emily cox and my dear listeners because i care about you so much i have partnered with more yoga to offer you free yoga you can get one month free yoga using the code wwsc the initials for women who self-care with the amazing company More Yoga, who have yoga studios all across London at some of the most competitive rates in London. I can definitely vouch for that. There is 
sort of every single membership catering for every sort of person. To get that free online yoga membership, all you have to do is put the code in the promotion box at the checkout. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to Women Who Self Care. Follow us on Instagram and see you next week.